Well, good evening. Welcome back again. As we open the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews tonight, I want to remind you, just in way of review, where this is going. Chapter 1, it talks about how Christ is superior to all the prophets. Then he also talks about how uh, he is superior because of his divinity, that he's a divine human being. And then chapter 2 gives the first warning. What was that first warning? The danger of drifting away, of neglect, and how if we neglect our spiritual walk with the Lord, we will slowly drift away and we'll probably be the last to notice it. And then as we moved on, we also talked about in chapter 3, he's also superior to the angels. He who was above the angels came down below the angels with us to take on our humanity so that he could bring us up above the angels with him. And so that is brought out in those chapters. In chapter 3, it talks about Moses, one who was dearly loved by the Jewish people. And how not only is Christ superior to Abraham, he's superior to Moses, the one who wrote the law as God gave it to him and gave it to the people. And we ran into our second warning. And that was the danger of hardening your heart. And we ran into that in verse... um, actually verse 7 of chapter 3. So he, he warns us against drifting away. He warns us against hardening of hearts. Now, as we move into chapter 4, I want to clarify something. You know that when the Bible was written, the original language did not have chapters and verses in them. You'll notice in here it will say, It's written somewhere in the scriptures, and then he'll quote something, you see, because they didn't have chapters and verses. And so these were put in. Sometimes where they put them, there wasn't a logical break. And you will find that chapter 4, especially as the first 14 verses, they actually go along with chapter 3 and what he's talking about. And then when you get to verse 15 in chapter 4, from there through to chapter 6, he starts talking about a different theme. Now he's building an argument as he goes along. With that little bit of background, as we enter chapter 4, verse 1, I've put both the old King James and the new King James on there. As I told you before, I like the new King James and but my machine had the old King James, so I put both of them on for us so that we could compare the translations to make sure that they're accurate. Notice what it says. That starts off with let us, but this one starts off with the word therefore. Now, when it says therefore, what's it talking about? Verse 1 in chapter 4 is picking up on the tail end of what he was talking about in chapter 3. And my Bible says in chapter 3, the last verse, he says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. 
Because Christ was tempted, he knows what it's like when you're tempted. You see. And because he does, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Come short of what? We come short of the rest that God has for us. Now, what is that rest? The word used here for rest is not Shabbat. It is not Sabbath. The word for rest, there are many words for rest. In the book of Ruth, I checked it today before I came over. In the book of Ruth, you'll find that the word rest is Menoch. And the word rest in that case, a woman's rest was in the home of her husband where she could settle down, where she could feel safe and secure. Now, it's interesting, from that word Menoach, we get the name Noah, you see. And what was Noah looking for in a turbulent world? He was looking for a place of safety, a safe place of rest. And God had to provide the vehicle for that. And so we find that the ark of Noah became a place of rest. Here, it uses the word kataposis. Now, kataposis means to settle, to settle down. You know, people who are constantly anxious, people who are fearful, their spirit is restless. God wants to give them peace, you see. And notice, this is the rest that he's talking about. It means a cessation from labor or activity, a state of inactivity. Now, that doesn't mean that they're brain dead. When it says a state of inactivity, it means they quit fighting. They quit fighting God, and they submit to God. Notice also, this word, catapostas, is used in the chapters 3 and 4 eight times. So he must think that it's significant. And notice both 3 and 4 go together. Later on in chapter 4, he's going to use a different word for rest. And we'll talk about that. It specifies a particular rest. It's God's rest. After God created the world, he rested. He stopped working He settled down to enjoy the things that he had made, you see. And, you know, when you've done a good job, you like to just sit there and look at it, right? Did you ever have that experience? You just want to sit there and look at it. And this is what God did. Not only did he look at it, he wanted to interact with it because these were living beings that he had made. So he rested. He came into oneness. He came into fellowship with them. This is what he wanted to do with the children of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. He wanted them to be able to settle down in their own land, be secure, to be safe, where he could interact with them. He would be their God. They would be his people. Unfortunately, the majority of them did not 
buy into that. Now, in the LXX, what's LXS stand for? L is in Roman numerals 50. X is 10. So that number is 70, right? What's it referring to? I heard somebody say it. The Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And it was translated by 70 scholars. So instead of writing out Septuagint all the time, they just abbreviated LXX. So if you see that, you'll know what they're talking about. The Septuagint, which is quoted often in the book of Hebrews, it uses it to represent a permanent place. The word rest, as it's used in the Septuagint, he wanted to give them a home of their own. When the Jews came out of Germany after the Second World War, what was it they wanted? They wanted a place of their own, right? A homeland. And he wanted to give them a homeland back then. He wants to give us a homeland in the future, doesn't he? A place where we'll be safe. There won't be crime. There won't be all kinds of things going on. And we find a permanent place where the ark, which symbolized the presence of God, would be able to be permanently settled after wandering around in the wilderness all that time. You've heard the expression, the wandering Jews. Because through the centuries they've been wandering around, they didn't have a homeland of their own. This is the type of thing, uh, illustration, he's trying to use to uh, show the relationship he wanted to have with his children. In verse 2 it says, very interestingly now, I'm going to read it from the New King James. You can read whatever you want up there. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Oh, it's saying that the gospel was preached to the children of Israel when they were wandering around in the desert. Now, that's interesting because we think of the word gospel as pertaining to the New Testament. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. What was the good news? That they have salvation and that God would send a substitute who would pay the price of sin so that they could be redeemed. Okay? Now notice it said, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Huh. Well, I always thought in the Old Testament people were saved by works. But what's it say there? That's a message of righteousness by faith, isn't it? If they didn't have faith, they weren't going to make it into the promised land, you see. And so they wandered around. They, they were right in the presence of God. They were following the tent through the wilderness. But because it wasn't mixed with faith. Now, what did we learn about the word belief last week? If you say, 
I don't believe something. What are you really saying? I unfaith it. I don't have faith in it. If you say, I believe something, that means you have faith in it. Because the word really is faith. The original language doesn't carry the connotation of belief. Belief is more of an intellectual thing. Faith is an experiential thing. Remember I used the illustration of the fellow who was a tightrope walker across Niagara Falls. Everybody saw him do it. And he says, how many of you think I can ride a bicycle all the way back to the other side? And they all raised their hand. Yay, we believe it. He says, okay, who wants to come and ride with me? Boom, the hands went down. Nobody wanted to go with him until he heard a little voice saying, I'll go with you, Dad. His son got on the bike and they went across. Now, the people on the safe shore They believed, but they didn't have faith. See, the word faith carries the connotation of putting your full weight on something. I have faith that this chair will hold me up or I wouldn't put my full weight in it. And when you are willing to put your finances, when you're willing to put your children, your home, your future in God's hands, that's faith, you see. Some people say, I believe in God, but they don't trust God with it. You know, the Bible says the devil believes in God, but that doesn't mean he has faith in God. All right, so notice it says that the gospel was preached to them as well as to us. Now, how was the gospel preached to them? First off, the word gospel means good news. Now, in the Old Testament, the gospel was preached through types and ceremonies. The rituals, the symbols that they used, carried some significance with regard to the Messiah, it would, uh, what his work would be, about his character, and a number of other things about the, the Messiah. That if they studied it, they would have seen that God's plan of salvation was there. Matter of fact, Abraham, when he, God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham took a lot of faith on his part. But he said, if God said it, I'll believe God. I will trust him. And by the way, if you look at that story, you'll see that Abraham and Isaac Both trusted God, and they both believed in the resurrection, even when they hadn't seen anybody resurrected before. And so Abraham takes the knife, and he's ready to plunge it down, and God stops him. He said, Abraham, instead of your son, put that ram there, and I will take the blood of the animal instead. The substitution is a very important topic in the scriptures. You see, Jesus is your substitute. So you don't have to pay the second death. He paid it for you. You may have to die the first death. But the second death, the one that's eternal separation from God, the experience that Jesus felt on the cross, that's what Jesus paid the price for. 
Stop and think about it. We talked about the divinity of Christ a little earlier. Jesus had been with God for all eternity in that direction. Right? And there was never a time he wasn't in the presence of God. But at the cross, do you realize that the cross ruptured the Trinity? Most people don't stop to think about that. It fractured the Trinity. Because Jesus became sin as a substitute. He became sin for the whole world. And the scripture says that sin cannot be in the presence of God. My God is a consuming fire to the wicked, right? And so therefore, as an act of love on God's part, he pulled away from Jesus. And he hid behind a cloud. He was there, but did Jesus feel his presence? He didn't feel his presence, did he? And he said, my God, my God. And he uses the singular. Before I said the word Elohim is plural. It means the Godhead. Way back in creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Elohim. But now, he uses the singular form. And he says, my Eli, my Eli, some say Eli, some say Eli. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you pulled away from me? Jesus felt eternal separation from his father. No wonder in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating great drops of blood. As a matter of fact, if you look at it carefully, it says that Jesus, when he was in the garden, when he was going through this experience of thinking about being separated from his father, it said that he cried with a loud voice. He wept bitterly. And saying, Lord, if there's any way of delivering me from this eternal separation, please intervene. You know, sometimes the Lord has to tell us no. And that's not often what we want to hear. But the Lord said, this is the only way. Do you realize that Jesus, humanity, and his divinity were struggling against each other? He got the divinity from his father. He got his humanity from his mother. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his mother's gift to him was saying to him, nails hurt. When people, you know, spit at you, that's not nice. And as a result, we find this separation experience. And he was actually struggling against the body that Mary gave him. And finally he says, not my will, but your will be done. I'm willing to submit. That's what makes the cross so powerful. You can see why that garden was so important. It wasn't the nails that killed Jesus. It wasn't the spear that was stuck in him. It was the pain, the emotional pain, the mental pain 
of eternal separation. And once he faced Gethsemane and settled it, notice that word settled? His faith was settled in his father. He was willing to go through and the nails and the spear and everything, they were minor consequence because he had gained the victory over that separation. This is what the word rest actually carries. It's the connotation of settled in faith. Notice here it says in the Old Testament the gospel was preached through type and ceremony and sacrifice and ritual, but it was the same gospel that more recently was proclaimed by Christ. And you can look at Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, and it will confirm that. Let's look at verse 3. And notice what it says. For we who have believed do enter, that means we are entering, that rest. As he said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, speaking of those who didn't trust him. And notice it quotes Psalm 95.11. You will find in 3 and 4, he quotes 95.11 quite a bit. It says, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, yet there was more work that needed to be done. And it says, here's, a, here's the actual 95.11 as quoted in the Old Testament. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now notice here too, some people are accepting the invitation and entering into God's rest by faith. There are those who truly have faith in God. And they are entering into a fellowship, a communion with them. Remember Enoch in the Old Testament. He walked with God. He did justly. He loved to do mercy. And he walked humbly with his God. What does it mean walking with God? It means in obedience, in submission to the will of God. This is what Jesus learned from his experience as the Messiah. He was bringing humanity after thousands of years of degeneration. He was actually resisting what Adam gave into. That's why it's called the second Adam. He was undoing Adam's mistakes. Anyway, it says that the rebellious are constantly in turmoil spiritually. By faith in his promises, some are settled and find peace with God spiritually. That's what he's referring to. This is what he's talking about in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now here, he uses a different word. And a power, this means rest, and here it means take it easy, refresh, repose, take rest. In plain words, be refreshed. Come unto me, all you who are laboring and striving and heavy laden, and I'll give you repose. I'll give you a chance to grab your breath. I'll bring you peace of mind. So many people want peace of mind. Have you noticed that there's a lot of people that are willing to give you a piece of their mind? That isn't the kind he's talking about. 
He wants to bring your mind at ease with God and help you to realize that God's your friend. He loves you. He's working for your salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 3, of Nazareth, it is said that he did not uh, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What's the word? Unfaith. Now, that's interesting because Nazareth, that's his hometown, but he was born in Bethlehem. His father lived in Nazareth first. He was born in Bethlehem, and later on he moves back to Nazareth, right? That's where he grew up. These people knew him, and, but they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. I mean, have you ever found it difficult to witness to your closest loved ones? Why, I remember you when you were a whippersnapper. I remember you when you were in diapers. I changed your diapers. You're telling me the important things of life, you see? They know where to put the pins because they know you so well. And here, Jesus could not perform many of his works because they thought of him as the little boy growing up. They didn't have faith in him. They didn't trust in him. Even though that's the town he grew up in. That's why he's called a Nazarene. Because he grew up in Nazareth. Notice in Hebrews 4.4. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. All right, now what's it saying here? In the New King James, for he has spoken in a certain place. Notice a certain place. He doesn't give the chapter and text because he didn't have any. Uh, Of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested. Now, there are those who say, well, see, that means God rested on the seventh day. And uh, therefore... Um, there are actually those who are saying that the seventh day is no longer the Sabbath because that God rested on it. Believe it or not, there are some who interpret it that way. But notice here, Genesis 2.2, it says, And on the seventh day, God ended his work. God worked for six days straight. And isn't it interesting that the number six is associated with the beast. Six, six, six. Why? What is six? It's a seven without a rest. You see. It's the time for working. And people who try to work themselves into the kingdom of God never have rest, spiritually speaking, because they don't enter into a spiritual Sabbath with the Lord. They're trying to save themselves by their works. And so we find here, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. Now notice, God made the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a part of the seven-day week. 
but it's not a work day. God took it off. Many times people say, well, I believe in, I believe that I should keep every day as the Sabbath. Well, that's fine. But, you know, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. And if you keep every day as the Sabbath, I'm not going to hire you. Because if you refuse to work seven days, how much time do you have to work, you see? That isn't what he said. It's not a Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Anyway, look at verse 5. It says, and again in this place, they shall enter into my rest. Now, before he said they won't enter into my rest, now he says they will enter into my rest. What's the difference? Those who do not believe, do not have faith, will not enter into the rest. Even though they're a part of Israel, they wouldn't enter into the rest. When they came out of Egypt, counting the men, women, and children, there were about, what, two million people that came out? How many people actually went over into the promised land to settle? What? Two. Who were the two? Who were the two? Caleb and Joshua. That's a pretty small remnant, isn't it? Think of Noah and the ark, all the millions, perhaps billions of people that lived on the earth before the flood. How many actually got in the boat? Eight. Eight out of millions or billions is a pretty small remnant. So a lot of people say, well, everybody else is doing this, so the majority of the people believe that. Don't forget, the highway to you know where is paved with all kinds of good intentions, but are they in harmony with the scriptures, you see? And so we find here, it says that they would enter into his rest, but it had to be mingled with faith. Now, in 95.11, it's quoted for the third time. Psalm 95.11. The third time this is quoted. And here it says that God rested from his works, but the people did not. You see. When God created the world, he rested and had interaction with them. When he brought them out of Egypt, he wanted to give them a rest, a place to settle down, but they wouldn't have any of it. First thing they did was form a Back to Egypt committee. Right? Remember the good old days of the leeks and onions? Oh, the taskmasters. Oh, they were such nice guys. You know, how quickly we forget. You see. And Notice that it says that God rested from his work, but the people did not. Now, stop and think about that. But one can rest, or one can take the right day off and never enter into the Sabbath. You know, you may be keeping, you may not be going to work to your job on the right day of the week. You know, I keep the seventh day. And I am a Sabbath observer. But have you ever entered into the Sabbath? I remember when I was first started teaching, I was up in Maine. And I remember 
that this particular time, we had to go down to Portland of um, Oxford, which was up near Woodstock where we were teaching. And I went past the racetrack. And I glanced out the window. And there were some of our church members just before sunset. They're sitting in the parking lot looking up at the sun, looking at their watches and waiting for the racetrack to open. And I thought to myself, they're just counting the time for the Sabbath to be over. You know, if that's where their mind is, their body might as well be in there, you see. We can have our thoughts on secular things on the Sabbath. Even though we're not going to work, we're still thinking, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. Oh, I can't wait till sunset because I've got things to do. You see, you need to be careful of that. Also, you need to guard the Sabbath's edges. How many times, you know, we're running along, racing around, trying to get everything done. Oh, Sabbath's coming on at 7.15. I got two minutes to go. I'm starting this and everything. And then 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Bing! Whoa! You're right on the edge. Right? That's called brinkmanship. That's called brinkmanship. You go right up to the edge of the Sabbath and hope that you don't fall into the Sabbath. You see. But did you ever notice, especially if you're doing mental work, you can stop physically, but your mind goes on. Your mind will go on for a half an hour, maybe an hour more, thinking about, let's see, I didn't quite solve that problem. I still got this to do, I still got that to do. And so I've stopped physically for the Sabbath, but my mind has not entered into the Sabbath. My attitudes are not with the Sabbath. You see, this is what he was talking about. These people did not have an attitude that was right with God. And that's what kept them out of the kingdom. You remember when in chapter uh, 20 of Exodus... It talks about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on the mountain and God writing it on the tables of stone. But go back to chapter 16. And it talks about the manna falling in the wilderness. Now, fellas, you know, we're supposed to provide for our families, right? That's part of the job of a husband. The word husband means house band. The one that who keeps the family together, makes them feel secure. That's why Ruth uses it in terms of a woman's safety is in the home of her husband. He's the one that's supposed to keep it together. Well, here he says, I'll let the manna fall every day. But on Friday, I'm going to let a double portion fall. Because the next day is the Sabbath. And I don't want you out there gathering. And so that it fell on Friday. But guess what? You read the story for yourself in chapter 16. There were still some who went out looking around to gather the manna. And what did God say? How long do I have to put up with you people that you don't believe me? You don't faith me? You don't trust me? You see... 
they were still, I could see them out there saying, well, I got to provide for my family. God already made provision. He gave you twice on Friday. What makes you think you have to go out today? You see. And they didn't trust, have faith, have confidence. They weren't sure that God could hold them up if they put their full weight in him. This is the essence of what this chapter is about. Look at verse 6. It says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. Aha! Look what it says up here. In the old King James it says, They didn't enter in because of unbelief. Down here in the New King James, it says they didn't enter in because of disobedience. What does that tell you? If you have faith, you will obey. Faith is not just an intellectual experience. It's an action. When the Lord says, keep my commandments, you know what it's really saying? Do my commandments. That's really what the connotation of it. And Jesus says, if you love me, Do my commandments, you see. So we find that there's a faith, action, works, relationship. That of obeying God, doing what he asks us. So obedience, what is it? It's our response to our trust in God. It's our response to the faith that we profess to have. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Again, He limited a certain day, saying uh, in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, wait a minute. I thought in chapter 3, wasn't that the second warning? Wasn't that the second warning, not to harden your heart? Notice in chapter 4, he comes back to that same theme. Because once you're used to saying no, it's easier to say no the next time. When I was teaching school in the summer, we had the summer off when I was living in New Hampshire. It was before I went into the pastoral ministry. And so I got a job selling world book encyclopedias. By the way, it's a good encyclopedia. Uh, if you want, I can do a commercial for you and tell you how much superior it is. And But I don't think I'll get a commission on it, so I, I'll save my breath. But World Book Encyclopedia, one thing that they taught us was when you are selling the book, try to get ask questions and get the people to say yes. Yes. Do you like, don't don't you think this is a great book? Oh, yeah, that's very good. You like the pictures in it? Oh, yes, I like the picture. Don't you think the language is understandable? It's not highfalutin like Britannica is. It's on everyday language. Oh, yeah, I like that. And then, wouldn't your kids love to have a set of these in the house? Yeah, they probably would. You could probably use them if you're doing homeschooling. You can use them right at home, can't you? Yeah, I can do that. And then you you whip out the contract and you say, now, which volume do you like? The leather-bound ones or the cheap-bound ones? You know, usually you sell them the more expensive one first. But 
Which one do you want? Oh, I like those better. Oh, okay. Uh, do you prefer to pay for it all at once or a little bit at a time? Oh, I think I could probably manage a little bit at a time. You're getting them to say yes so that they put their signature on the line and you close the deal, right? Okay. Devil does the same thing. So does the Lord. He wants us to say yes to him. Yes to him. And the more we learn to say yes to God, the easier it is to walk with God. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? You see? But if you say no to God, no to God, no to God, you're going to say no to him once too often and commit the unpardonable sin. And so this is the point he's trying to get across. And notice the sense of urgency. He said, today, today, you will find that word today popping up frequently in these chapters. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Why? It's a sense of urgency. How do you know you're going to be here tomorrow? You see. Uh, in Revelation, we talk about the end times and the, the tragic things that are going to take place in the world. And we say, oh yeah, we'll wait till we get there. I don't know if you heard on the news this last week. On the news last week, they were talking about ISIS. Did any of you hear what they were doing to some of the, the captives that they have? They were lowering people. I, th- I thought they said about 90 people. They lowered them into nitric acid. And they literally dissolved the people. Lowering people into nitric acid and just dissolving them from existence. My friends, we don't have to worry about atrocities They're happening today, you see. We may not experience it firsthand, but there are some parts of the world, if if a person doesn't convert, he has to make a choice, convert or die, you see. And so these things go on. There's a sense of urgency. How do we know we'll be here tomorrow? And we need to make a decision. The longer we wait, this is a favorite tool of the devil, by the way, The longer you wait to make a decision for the Lord, the easier it is to harden your heart. You can say no just so long to God. A lack of response causes delay and a hardening of the heart. Psalm 95, 7 and 8. It says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. As in the provocation. They provoked God. Notice. They were provoking God in the wilderness. And as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Notice what it says in verse 8. And if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now notice, in the old King James, it says, Jesus. 
What's it say in the New King James? Joshua. Now, is that a mistake? Is there an error in the scriptures? I mean, didn't the Bible writer know the difference between Jesus and, and uh, Joshua? What does the name Joshua mean? It means salvation or Savior. What does Jesus mean? Savior or salvation, right? It's the same word, you see. The names Joshua, uh, Hoshea, O.C., they're all the same name. Yeshua or Jeshua or Joshua. Jesus, by the way, this is the anglicized form of it. In the original language, his name was uh, Yeshua. And so we find that the, uh, the names are the same. And what is a name? A name tells something about a person's character. Notice here, it says, if Joshua had brought them safety and settled rest in the promised land, he wouldn't have to worry about a new promised land ahead. But my friends, the same with Jesus. Jesus was actually the one leading Joshua, wasn't he? And Jesus wanted to bring them in to the promised land so that his people would have a place of safety, a permanent home, where they'd be secure. But they wouldn't have it. So Jesus says, okay, I will delay it. There's another day in the future. Now, there are some people who use this text to try to say, see, it means that you don't have to keep the Sabbath because God had another day of rest in the future, and that's Sunday. So therefore, we can do away with the Sabbath. You've got you to twist that scripture around in order to get that in there. That's not even what he's talking about. He's talking about the secure land, the promised land, the new Jerusalem, the happy ever after land. That's what he's talking about. When it says the meek shall inherit the earth, he didn't mean this old planet. He meant the new earth. And the meek are the humble. And notice, because they didn't make it in, because of unbelief, God had to say, okay, I will take those who are faithful, the remnant, I will take them into the new promised land when the end of time comes. So, Jesus or Joshua, in Joshua 22, 4, it says that Joshua brought them into the rest, but the people, now notice when they came in, they were supposed to drive out the enemy. Matter of fact, they... If they had faith, they wouldn't even have had to fight the Canaanites. Because God said he would have driven them out with what? Hornets. Right. He, he would have had the bees drive them out, you see. But since they didn't have faith, he said, okay, you guys drive them out. And they refused to drive them out. Oh, they drove out a few of them. But... They refused and they compromised with them. And he says, okay, if you want the Canaanites with you, we'll leave them with you. But there'll be a thorn in your flesh all the time you're here. You see, while they were there, they were constantly fighting and struggling 
when that was supposed to be a land of peace. They didn't enter in because of their lack of faith. They didn't enter into their permanent sanctuary. Really, that was to be a sanctuary in space, that promised land. And notice here in verse 9, there remaineth therefore, therefore means he's picking up on that theme, that analogy. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now notice it doesn't say it's for the unbelievers. It's for those who have faith. They are the people of God. They are the ones who will make it into the promised land. Now notice that now Paul introduces a new word. Up through verse 8 here, Paul has been using the word kataposis for rest. In verse 9, he introduces a word nowhere else found in the Bible or in secular literature. And that is the word sabbatismo. Now, the word Shabbat is referred to as the Sabbath. But what is sabbatismos? It means a Sabbath-like rest. He's not making another day. He's saying, I want to fulfill that true Sabbath experience. I not only want you keeping the right day, I want you to have the right attitude. I want you to have peace of mind. I want to have the Sabbath be a delight, a joy for you. And that's what I want for the new earth. I was going to give it to you in Canaan, but you didn't want it. So I said, okay, they don't want it. Those who believe me, I will give them that peace, that new earth experience. And so we find here that the NIV calls it a Sabbath rest, but it's really a Sabbath-like rest. And notice it was not a negative experience. It was a positive experience he's talking about. It was a foretaste of the greater rest that was before. Look at verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his work as God did from his. Now, whose rest is it? Is it our rest? It's God's rest, you see. Many people say, well, my Sabbath is Thursday. Well, that's fine. If you want to keep Thursday, keep Thursday. But that doesn't mean God's going to be resting with you. He's going to be working while you're taking a day off, you see. He wants us to take the day off when he's resting. It's his Sabbath, not ours. And that future experience, it's not nirvana. It's not... uh, You know, well, some individuals fly airplanes into buildings so that they can have seven diversions. There are those who say that if you're married in the temple, that you'll have your own planet that you can populate. You see, that's all right for the guys, but the women having morning sickness for the eternity, trying to populate a planet, that's not much of a heaven. You see? But what is the promise that God has given us? That's the land that he offers us. 
And it's not ours, it's his. It's ours because of a gift of Jesus. We want to enter into oneness with Jesus. The relational rest is oneness with God as in the marriage relationship. As a matter of fact, it is called the marriage of the Lamb. He is the groom, we are the bride. Now, my wife and I had a wedding. She's been a bride before, but I've never been a bride. But yet the scripture says that by faith, I am a bride of Christ. You see, we are entering into that marriage relationship. In Hebrews 4.11, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall short, a fall after the same example of disobedience. In plain words, let's be on the ball. Let's be alert. And if you're not alert, then you are intoxicated. You are drunk. You see? And when it talks about the wine of Babylon, it intoxicates people's minds. It confuses them. But if we are alert, if we are studying the Word of God, if we are looking at the character of Jesus and the promises, we'll be on the alert when the devil comes sneaking around trying to sell us a bill of goods. Otherwise, we could fall into the same example of disobedience. So much for once saved, always saved. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10 in the New King James. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For... If you do these things, you will never stumble. You will never stumble. Does that mean it's righteousness by work? No, it means it's righteousness by obedience out of faith that Christ will strengthen us to walk with him. That's what it means. Look at Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living. The Bible's not a dead book. The Bible's a living book. Every time I go through this book, I find something new that I never even thought about before. It pops right out. For the word of God is living and powerful and and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's saying that it penetrates your heart. Your thoughts, your desires, even your actions. A two-edged sword cuts on the way in, and it cuts on the way out. At home, I have a, well, I don't anymore. I give it to my son. But I have a real Civil War sword, and it's a double-bladed sword. And when they... They cut you on the way in, and when they pulled it out, they cut some more. And what does the Word of God do? It cuts our habits. It cuts our thoughts, our desires, things we used to do. Hey, when, when did I give them up? I don't even remember that. They've been trimmed out of my life. And the things I never thought I'd do, now I am doing them. You see, He changes us. The Word of God has two meanings. The scriptures, this is the word of God. But Jesus is the word of God too. And both cut through our thoughts, our hearts, our actions. In verse 13 it says, 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight. God sees everything. God knows everything. The present is here. Uh, I am told that every word you speak continues on. You know, if you go outside and you holler, as the waves go out, they keep expanding and expanding. Now, they probably bounce around the universe, I mean, the uh, atmosphere a while. But I wonder, hmm, I wonder if the people who said, crucify him, crucify him, 2,000 years ago, I wonder if their words are still out there somewhere. Maybe out past Pluto or somewhere. Maybe they've gotten out there. In the judgment, all God has to do is pull those things back in. And you can have, you can hear your own voice denying Christ. Can you imagine what it would be like? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, to the eyes of him, to whom we must give account. Now notice that word give account. That means judgment. There's a judgment that's a universal judgment. It's mainly talking about human beings being judged, but it says all creatures would be judged and held accountable. What does it say? Why do the righteous go back to heaven during the millennium? It says what? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? We get a chance to look over the record of that old rascal called Lucifer. And see all the trouble that he's caused and the results of it. We, and what should be his penalty for it? Surely God is just in what he does. We will find that out because there's an accountability. The angels, animals, and if there are other beings out there somewhere, they also are God's creation. They're part of his restoration. He wants to bring the whole universe back into harmony once again. They are also eyewitnesses to the way Christ deals with sin and sinners. The devil has said that God is unfair, that even perfect angels couldn't keep his commandments. His law was called into question. And what's he say? He says, well, on earth... I have these people. They were in the pit of sin. But through Christ, they kept my law perfectly. And we make a liar out of Satan. What are we? We are the witnesses in the trial that takes place. That's why God gave the judgment over to Christ. Because God the Father is being accused. And therefore, so Satan can't say the jury is rigged, we'll let Christ handle the judgment. We'll let the redeemed saints look over the books. And don't kid yourself, whatever beings there are out there, they have a stake in what happens down here. They may never have fallen, but they can see the love of God for his creatures who have fallen. And now he brings them back and restores them. This is a... There's just so much in the plan of salvation that we miss. Look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to the faith that God has given us. The righteousness of Christ, confidence and trust and faith that if he's brought us all this way, what he tells us is going to happen in the future will be solid. And as we come to verse 14, up to this point, he's been talking about Christ and the plan of salvation. But notice now, he starts to talk about the high priest. And from here through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he's going to start dwelling on the high priest. Because, you see, the whole plan of salvation is based around the priesthood. And because priests die, they have to keep putting in a new one. But we have a priest, a high priest, who never, I mean, he died once, but he died once for all. Therefore, he can be a better priest. We don't have to keep repeating things over again. Just like he was the better sacrifice, he was sacrificed once for all. We don't have to keep killing animals. And notice the theme of Hebrews 4, 14 through 6.20, deals with the better priest. So he, he built the background about talking about why Christ was superior to uh, Moses and to, uh, he was a better sacrifice and all this. Why? Because that made him a better high priest, you see. This is the reason why we need to study the sanctuary message. The sanctuary message is the gospel in the Old Testament. And if we understand what was happening in the Old Testament, it helps us to understand what he's talking about in the New Testament. You see, they go hand in glove. And from verse 4, 14 onward, actually are a part of chapter 5. And I'll be referring back and forth because of that, although we'll be doing chapter 5 separately. I may, if, I have, if I'm able to, I may blend a couple of these chapters together so that uh, we can catch the theme in its fullness. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He took on your human flesh that is fallen, but he didn't give in to sin like Adam did. He didn't give in to the sin, but he can understand what it's like to be tempted. You see, and it says that he was tempted in all points. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that in the Bible somebody offered Jesus uh, uh, crack cocaine. You see, what it means is the sins of the flesh come in a variety of different ways. Uh, pride comes in a collection of different ways, and when you categorize these. Jesus knocked the underpinnings out of all those temptations. And he resisted them. So, Christ is superior. His divinity is superior. His humanity, he's superior to angels. Moses, 
Uh, in his mission, he's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Aaron, which we'll find out shortly. Superior as our high priest. He's a superior because of his suffering. And notice in the last verse, verse 16. Let us therefore, he loves that word therefore. You notice, he, because he's, he gives an argument and he says therefore, he gives an argument, therefore, he's showing that these things are connected. He's moving towards something. What's he moving from? He's moving from over here where the prophets that God tried to explain the plan of salvation through the prophets and they weren't getting the point. Now he sends the Son of God who will die as their sacrifice and become their great high priest in the judgment that's ahead, you see. He's building toward this. And it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they first had to confess their own sins and offer an offering for their own sins because they were sinful human beings before they could intervene for the people. But Christ has no sin. And because he's taken on your humanity, he comes boldly in before the Father pleading in behalf of the people. And because he has our flesh, instead of being afraid of God, in our prayers we can boldly come before the Father in the name of Jesus asking for the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus gives that formula. Ask the Father in the name of the Son to send us the Holy Spirit to do these things. The triune God, you see. All working for our redemption that we may have grace, that we may find mercy before God's throne. My friends, this book is a wonderful book. We may come boldly before God, and I've already mentioned there that Aaron, in his priesthood, he had to have his own sins forgiven. But Christ doesn't, therefore he can come before us. And our request will be heard. Because of what Christ did, we can present our request before the Father through the Son, knowing that our prayers will, by faith, be heard. God hears the requests and the praise of the sincere heart. And notice that word sincere. That word sincere comes from two Latin words, sinecere. Sinecere. You know what it means? Sine means without. Sire means wax. The word sincere means without wax. Now, what does that mean? In the ancient times, when they would sculpt, you know, these uh, statues, they'd sell them at a high price. And sometimes somebody would come in and say, boo, and the guy's about to hit the thing, and he makes a nick out of it. And now it's like cutting diamonds, you know. All you have to do is go, oops, and that $10,000 diamond is only worth $500 now because of one stroke. 
and they make a nick in the statue. Well, they said, man, I, I can't afford to sell this thing cheap. I can't throw it away. Therefore, what they would do, they would take wax and they would fill in the nick. And because of the color of the wax, it would blend in with the marble. And it would look like one piece of marble. And that's wonderful. Cheryl just bought herself a beautiful statue to put it out front in the front yard in her garden. Well, you've got to remember that in that part of the world, the summers got pretty hot. And you bring everybody in to see your beautiful statue. And the temperature's pushing 100 degrees or whatever. Isn't that beautiful? I paid good money for this statue. Somebody goes over and they look and they look carefully. Do you know you've got something running down the side of your, your statue? You go over and you... <gasps> the wax melted under the heat of the sun. And all the flaws showed up. That's why God allows people to go through hard times. So that the genuine and the make-believe are exposed for what they are. And so what would they do? Because of this, they required those who were making these statues to hang little signs on the statues. If they were perfect, they would hang a little sign that said, Sine Sire, without wax. And you know that you're getting the real McCoy. If, if it melts when you get it home, you can take it back and take him to the cleaners for doing it. So this is what the word sine sire means, without wax. And these are the type of people he wants to take to that promised rest that is before us. That's why he allows them to go through the testings and the trials because it builds their faith. And so, my friends, in summarizing tonight, what are the things that we pointed out? First, tonight, we reviewed the highlights of chapter 3 and the chapters before. We learned that God has an unfulfilled future rest for the faithful. And, number three, it was unbelief or unfaith that kept the ancient Israel from entering into the promised land, and they died in the desert. It will do likewise for modern Israel. Only the sincere will make it in. And then Joshua and Jesus are both correct in leading Israel to the promised land. We found that faith and obedience are used synonymously in chapter 4. And the last point, the word of God brings life and power to the standard for determining truth and er from error. That is the way we determine it.